In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. If there's one composer whose work has completely enveloped all aspects of my Disney life, and probably yours too, from my most formative years until this day, across films and theme parks and so many other branches of Disney, it has to be today's guest. Bruce Broughton wrote the scores for more than a dozen Disney or Disney-branded film productions, as well as attractions dating back more than three decades. Among them are the Homeward Bound films, the two Eloise films for the wonderful world of Disney, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, and O Canada. He continues to produce work today, more recently, for Seth MacFarlane's The Orville sci-fi series. Bruce Broughton represents one of Hollywood's most enduring and enchanting composers, a man whose work really helped spark my passion as a connoisseur of film scores. I really cannot overstate how thrilled I am to have him as a guest. So let's shift over to my conversation with the legendary Bruce Broughton. From scoring some of the most beloved Epcot attractions, including Spaceship Earth and Soarin' Around the World, to 90s-era Disney films like Honey, I Blew Up the Kid and The Rescuers Down Under, composer Bruce Broughton has been a musical fixture in our lives for many decades. He is a 10-time Emmy Award-winning composer and was nominated for an Academy Award for 1985's Silverado. Today on Notably Disney, he joins me to talk about his work for Disney including two of my favorite films, which are 1993's Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey, and its 1996 sequel, Lost in San Francisco. And he's also going to speak about some wonderful theme park attractions, including many that are fondly remembered. So uh, it is, I can't tell you enough, it is such an honor to be speaking with you, Bruce. I've, I've 
long-awaited um, being able to talk with one of my favorite composers. So I very much welcome you to the podcast. Thank you, Rick. It's nice to be here. Well, your work is very comprehensive and there are a number of different uh, projects that, that we can explore, but I was really hoping to begin with learning a bit more about your Disney roots. I'm always interested in different guests' Disney origin stories. And I understand that you visited Dis Disneyland shortly after opening day. So I'm wondering if you can maybe share what some of your initial impressions were of the park as it um, is close to celebrating 65 years. Well, first of all, I was 10 years old. <clears throat> My brother and I um, went there on the Wednesday after it opened. I think it opened on a Sunday and we were there a couple of days later. Uh, our parents dropped us off. He was eight and I was 10. Um, dropped us off and said, be here at five o'clock or whatever it was and we'll pick you up. And, you know, something which you would not do today. Uh, we just ran through the park because we were so excited. I, however, had been looking at it, at it for a couple of years before because there was a television show called Disneyland. Uh, and it was basically a long promo, promo for, the, uh, for the park. And I was by this time already a Disney fan because the only ambition I had as a kid was to become an animator. So I knew very well who Walt Disney was. I read a lot of the books. I would stay in this mode for a few years. Um, so I had an idea of animation, how animation was made, and, and I knew the Disney product pretty well. But the TV uh, marketing worked really well on me. And um, so when we came down to Los Angeles, um, we made a, a point to, to get to Disneyland. Um, I remember the park wasn't entirely completely open. I remember they had a spaceship to Mars. That wasn't open, but it was standing there and it looked pretty impressive. So it was just a good reason to come back a second time. There were a lot of things they had that they don't have any longer. Uh, and of course, a lot of things that they have now, um, nobody had even invented you know, by that time. So it, it was just very exciting. I think probably the most exciting thing actually was being just a little boy was actually Autopia because it was the first chance we had to get in these little cars and pretend like we were driving. But the whole thing was interesting. Um, I don't remember whether it was on that first trip or whether it was on later trips, but there was a store in Tomorrowland where you could actually buy um, original cells from the movies, which they had cut down to about, oh, I don't know, five by seven pictures and were selling for five bucks each. So I remember buying a couple of those. I don't know where they are now. But um, to be able to put your hands on the product and see, I remember one was a Peter Pan and the other one was either Chip or Dale. Um, I wish I'd, I wish I could find them because uh, I'm sure they'd be really worth something now, particularly to me. Anyway, that was it. It was just very exciting. Just very, very exciting. It was just a whole place devoted to Disney. And it was uh, there was no theme park, no park anywhere. There was anything like that in the world. My world wasn't that big at that age, but it was pretty spectacular. Wonderful. I was actually going to ask you if you had any favorite attractions as a child. So it sounds like the Autopia really fit the bill in that regard. Yeah, I can't remember. There, there was a remember there was a mule ride into. They had a um, they had some sort of a, a mine uh, over near where um, Thunder Thunder Railroad is now. Um, the Tom Sawyer thing wasn't in. There was no, um, 
It was actually pretty primitive compared to what it is now, but I do remember they had the riverboat ride. Um, that was kind of cool. Um, actually, everything was kind of cool. Even Main Street had a lot of stuff. Tomorrowland was very different because Tomorrowland kept, you know, you, you kept meeting Tomorrowland over the years. Uh, Fantasyland, the castle was there. The rides, the, uh, the rides like um, Peter Pan and Pinocchio, they had rides there, but they were not the same rides as they had now. They were much earlier versions. There was a theater in um, in that part of Fantasyland, I guess, that kept playing cartoons all during the day. There was a theater on Main Street that they still have that played, I think, silent movies all during the day, uh, probably old Disney cartoons. Um, some of the stores are still there. Some of the things are pretty much the same, but a lot of things have, have really, really changed. Um, the Tiki Room, I may or may not have been there. I, I can't remember. But uh, whatever was there was really, I mean, you could you can just imagine a 10-year-old kid with his eight-year-old brother having a time of his life. Oh, absolutely. And I, I would imagine, too, it sounds like you grew up on the Disney TV shows and, and films of, of that era. So to be able to envelop yourself in an environment that was so fantastical was probably pretty much a thrill. Yeah, I was, whenever there was, I, I remember at that time, Let's see, I was nine, I think. I was nine, I think, when Peter Pan came out. And I remember going to see Peter Pan. I remember seeing um, Alice in Wonderland. I remember seeing, you know, I remember seeing all the movies as they came out. The first one I saw, I was a really little boy. I think it was on its second release, was Bambi. And I remember sitting there with my mother, and then the part where the, where the mother died, I just couldn't believe that would actually happen. Um, that was kind of traumatic. That was the first Disney movie I saw. And then I remember playing, uh, uh, we got a, a 78 RPM um, recording of the Disney soundtrack to Bambi, which was narrated by Shirley Temple. And I remember playing that over and over and over and over and over again. So years later, when I got to do the sequel to Bambi, Bambi 2, which is not really a sequel, but the next Bambi movie, all those voices from 50 years or 60 or 70 years before were really familiar to me and um, all the dialogue and everything I mean, it was all all even some of the music came back some of the tunes and all this stuff came back so i would say that stuff was pretty deep in my deep in my boyhood absolutely I, i'm wondering as you got older and, and started engaging in composing tv shows and and film projects did you ever say to yourself like oh i would love to score a disney project of some sort um, you know, to, to be honest with you, I don't remember thinking like that because when I put away the idea of being an animator, which was actually a really good idea because when I eventually met the animators, they were a lot better than I probably would ever have been. But when I decided to go into composing, um, at that point, it became just trying to get a job, you know, trying to get the next TV show or trying to get in the movies or, or get better kinds of shows. And I, I really... I really hadn't thought too much about Disney um, until it happened. You know, when it when it happened, I think the first thing that I got was a. Um, I think the first time I worked at Disney was for Epcot, uh, the making of me. Of course. Which was a um, sort of a one-off for me. The people I worked with, I, I never worked with again. So we did that show, and that was done probably around 1985, because I remember I had done the Boy Who Could Fly which they used as a temp track for that for that show, which is, I think, that why they called me. Um, and then 
in the early 90s, I got a call from animation about the rescuers down under. And this is when I got really excited. <laughs> you know, from their perspective, I don't, I think they thought that it was going to be a hard sell because a lot of composers who work in television and films don't particularly like doing animation, or at least in those days, didn't like doing the kind of animation that that was, you know, it was still line animation, the, the really good kind. And uh, it was an easy sell for me. I mean, I do their movie and have their children too. It, it, you know, because I, I wanted to do it so badly. It was the closest I could get to being an animator on the film. And as it turned out, it was a great film. Um, the Rescuers was really amazingly made. Um, and even they said, I remember Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was working at Disney there, said it was the the uh, greatest cartoon ever made. And I think it, I think at that time it probably was. It um, it was a spectacular movie in terms of how it was put together and to be able to be the composer on it was um, definitely related to my, my childhood and all the stuff I'd done before. So I think I started working on the theme parks right around the same time. I don't remember exactly what year the first one was. In fact, you probably know better than I do. But uh, whatever it was, that was that for me was the beginning of my uh, contact with Disney and uh, working with them, you know, off and on fairly consistently. For sure. And I would love to dive into some of the theme park work later. I have a question uh, as it pertains to the making of me, in fact, but I, I would love to focus on um, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, your work for the Homeward Bound films, which for um, many, many children of the 80s and 90s were uh, staples in their households on their VHS tapes. And I know in, even in previous interviews, you've talked about how you've had individuals come up to you and talk about the impact of, of that film and, and complimentary the, the score for it as well. I'm wondering if you could maybe share how you were enlisted to write the score for this animal adventure flick. Um, the, the film had actually been made and scored by another composer before I got to it. He's a very good composer and one who I like a lot and I respect a lot. And I wouldn't say that about everybody, but this guy was really good. Um, I think it was unfortunate that he didn't get a chance to do the one that I did. Um, the problem they had was that the film itself was very similar to the film that it became, but they had different voices. They had very good actors do it, but they didn't have, um, I think they treated the voice actors pretty much like they treated actors. And, uh, you know, if you look at the movie without, without the voiceovers, it's basically just a bunch of animals running around and looking at each other or looking off to the left or up to the right or up, you know, it doesn't really make an awful lot of sense. Uh, so what happened, they, um, I, I guess the movie didn't um, preview well. So anyway, they decided to redo it. They recut it. And then they brought in one of the producers who I knew from animation. And he had been very used to working with voices for animation, which is very different because obviously in animation, uh, there are no live performances. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you do it through computers or whether you do it through line drawing. Um, all the voices are added afterwards. And in the case of um, Rescuers Down Under, yeah, I saw the process. They showed, uh, they showed basically a movie version of uh, storyboards, which are the, the setups for the scenes. And then they just draw a picture and then they would film all of those in, in sequence. And then they would have voices of anybody. I mean, any, somebody playing Bianca, somebody playing Bernard, whatever. And they would just put in these voices and you don't get you don't get the feeling of a, of a um, performance, but you do get at least a sense of how the movie's gonna go. 
Well, Homeward Bound was sort of like that. The, the um, actors, even though they were skilled actors and, and really well known, um, really needed to be coached by people who were uh, knowledgeable in animation. And so once they once they did that, they hired different actors, they had new actors, and they had this completely different kind of voice direction that really made the movie into something really watchable. It was really a lot of fun to watch. So at that point, I got called. I'm not sure why it was me over anybody else. Um, but anyway, so we did the movie. And the movie turned out to be pretty good, you know, right right from the start. It was uh, one that became a favorite and just never went away. And it's been remarkable to me that uh, for so many family films that I've done, not intentionally, just because that's what I ended up doing, um, a lot of these things stuck around for years. And as you mentioned, I have had many people, I mean, many people come up and tell me, either students or, or just people who knew that I was a composer, tell me how important uh, Homeward Bound was in their lives, you know. Uh, one person said to me, um, what does it feel like to know that you had such an effect on somebody's life? And I said, I'd really rather not think about it because I don't want to think that I'm out there manipulating people, you know, for big life problems. I'm just trying to write the music to this, to this show and do a good job. But that movie stuck around. And I found a lot of people in their 20s and 30s and maybe older and uh, actually people even older than that who now are watching the film a second time with their children um, because little kids still like to watch it. I even watched a, I've got a video that I found on YouTube of a little dog watching it. And the dog was getting excited at the end when, when the, the dogs and the cat come back. The dog's running around the room barking and I mean really into the movie, you know, paying attention to where the music comes in and all. <laughs> it's just like, I like a little kid watching it, it was this animal watching it. So, um, I mean, that's a good deal, you know, that's, that's cool when, you, when there's something you do 20, 30 years before, it keeps coming back and reminding you that uh, people are still watching it and still being affected by it. And a lot of that is part of that Disney experience. Uh, the theme parks, the movies, whatever I did with them, um, had a return, which I, which I've enjoyed a lot. As a viewer, I I pay very close attention to the scores as as I'm watching the film. I I recognize if how it fits and drives the narrative in appropriate ways, and I also feel like a strong component of any scores that it can work really independently from the film. And, and I think that's a, this film in particular is such a beautiful example of, of being quite emotional in, um, in stirring people to tears or to feel joy because of the, the sentiment that you convey, um, particularly in the scene, the, the final scene with the, the animals being reunited with their owners. Could you talk about your process of, being familiar with the, the visuals and trying to figure out what tone to strike, what instruments to bring in, how to create a, an individual track that really adds to what you are seeing on screen. Well, first of all, the only reason I'm there or any other composers there is not to present a concert. It's not to say, oh, I wrote this wonderful tune and blah, 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 blah. It's not that at all. Music is actually at least secondary in a movie. Um, it's there as a complement to the story. And the only reason the music is employed is because it, it actually is a very strong, um, almost subconscious storytelling instrument. Um, no pun intended, but it's, it's there to help tell the story. So if, if a scene is found not to, um, 
being able to complete what its purpose is, uh, they'll bring in the music. That is, the music will tell you that this is actually a little happier, or this is a little sadder, or this is a little more sinister. Um, you might see a romance scene that looks, you know, very nice, people getting along well with each other. But if there's supposed to be a little sinister bit in it, um, likely it is the music that's going to tell you that, because it may not be possible to do that with just the actors and, and the stage they're working on. So. The, the important thing for me, and I think for most composers who work in film, is to figure out, first of all, what's the story about? Um, in this particular case, it was pretty clear. Uh, the family was a really strong element in it. In fact, it's probably the strongest element in it because when the animals think that they've been deserted and try to find the family, it's their family. And even when they come back and reunited, I was watching a little bit of this the other day, Shadow says something about, oh, I was so worried about, when he sees his little boy, I was so worried about you. I was so worried whether you're okay. Well, geez, I mean, everybody's worried about Shadow. At one point in the film, he nearly dies, you know, and he's an old right. dog, you know, making all that stuff. But the animals are worried about, about their owners. So you have this strong sense of family of which the animals are a part. So I knew that I had to come up with a theme that had that sense of, um, of family and tradition, traditional values. Uh, the movie is very much shot that way. I mean, it's a very average family. Uh, they go out to a family that they like who live out in the country somewhere and, and leave their animals thinking that they are going to be taken well care of. And, and uh, you know, the animals don't get it. So the animals take off trying to find the family. So the other thing I noticed in the film was that I had a lot of places where the music was going to add significant um, juice to the scenes. There are a lot of scenes where the animals are basically just walking across the country trying to get back to their family. So I knew that I could use a long theme, a big theme, and I, I needed to find a theme that could stick in your head. Um, so I came up, there, there is a theme for the family, but the main theme that people remember is, I'm sitting by my piano, so I'll, I'll play it as this. So this long sustained tune, it's almost hymn-like, and it sets very well for strings and for a solo instrument. It sets very well for a big brass choir, anything which is grand. And, and because in this, they pass a lot of really beautiful country. And so here they are in the middle of California, um, out in the mountains and out in the wilderness. And, and this great scope, this great emotional scope, along with this great um, um, scenic material. I mean, it's like, why wouldn't you write, <laughs> why wouldn't you write a theme like that? rather than just do duty, 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 or a little bit of a rhythm, you know? So you want to write something that's going to connect with the animals, connect with the family, and most of all, connect with the audience. So I've played that theme occasionally for people and they just melt because they remember the movie. Now, the theme by itself may or may not be a good theme. I mean, it may be a good tune. I think it's, it's probably a pretty good tune, but believe me, it has no power without being connected to that movie. Because when the music gets connected to the movie and when the movie gets connected to the music, suddenly you've got something going on, you've got some real energy. I mean, it doesn't matter what piece it is. Um, if you heard the theme from Jaws without ever having seen the movie, it would be kind of interesting, but it, it wouldn't make you think of fish or the ocean. I mean, it's just music, you know? And the same thing with um, Star Wars or, or in my case, Silverado, any of those things. They're nice pieces of music, but you put them with that film and suddenly they mean something. So when you say that the music plays well on its own, I'm happy to hear that. But I'm thinking at the same time, you're being reminded of something that your 
uh, that, that's being evoked by this music. It's reminding you of a scene or of a, uh, of a story or of maybe characters who really resonate with you. And um, it gives you this kind of nice feeling, you know. Um, that's basically it. I mean, when I, when I come up with a theme, that's one thing. And then I have to think of how I'm going to treat it. What sort of instruments, what sort of style? Is this a Western? Is this a, is this a comedy? Is this something that's going to be kind of jazzy or kind of hip? Uh, is this going to be more traditional? Is this going to be whatever? And I get to choose my own instruments, my, my own musicians and all that kind of stuff and how to do this. Um, so you have pretty free reign. I mean, you know, given the budget, you have pretty free reign to be able to do um, emotionally and creatively what you need to do in order to be able to tell this story as well as you can. For sure. Well, first I have to say, I, I certainly got goosebumps when you played the tune. Um, <laughs> my gosh. But I, I'm interested, Bruce, in, in thinking about what you were just talking about, that you wanted to create a score that really emphasized that theme of family, but also taking into consideration that much of the film is set in the Sierra Nevadas, this wilderness, this really um, unfamiliar space for these lost animals, and that sense of nature and um, kind of an organic feel is also really surfaces in your score and really connecting back to those natural themes. Was that very, was that intentional and in how you kind of frame the, frame the score? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll tell you the biggest problem I had with the tune, and I realized this pretty early on in the film, was that it was, I couldn't play it too many times without you being aware that it was there. And so, you know, you don't, you don't want to pull any audience member out of the film to listen to your music. You want to keep them in the film. So there's a spot where um, at the beginning, the animals are finally taken off on their own and they stand on this peak and Shadow saying something like, well, I can tell it's just over there. And then the other two came up and looked and <laughs> what he's looking at is this huge valley, you know, with mountains everywhere and, and right. no houses and no streets and all that kind of stuff. And you know, it's going to be a long haul. Um, but that isn't the place they, they take off immediately. So I know I've got to play the tune there. I've got to play the theme there. But I really have to wait for the next scene, uh, which is, I think, a, a grander vista of the animals, you know, um, trotting along and trying to find the thing. So I knew I had to use the theme twice, one time right after the other. And if I did that, it would have been dull as heck, particularly when they got to the big scene that needed it. So I did a variation of it the first time around, using the chords and having the instruments play a little, something like. It's, it's sort of like a variation of the tune. And then when you get to the big thing where the camera pulls back and you can see how, how small the animals are given this massive area that they've got to cover, then the orchestra comes in and, and makes it sound really like this noble, you know, thing that's going on. So. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of planning and detail and care in all of this as to when to hit the right moments and, and how to do it with what instrument and, and uh, uh, where and, and what's the right look. A particularly big scene like that is at the very end when you know that shadow's going to come or you hope the shadow's going to come and you wait and you wait and then suddenly the the music starts just around the time I think just barely before you finally see see the the crest of his head. Um, 
It's a very big point. I mean, it brings tears to everybody because they're so happy to see the dog and you're not sure up to this point whether he actually survived the accident. So it's a big deal. So you have to sit there and you have to figure out, okay, when's the time? When's the time? If I'm too early, I'm going to give it away. If I'm too late, we're not going to get that feeling. When's the time to come in there with the, with the little, you know, notice with the music? It's, um, you can't do that with all movies, but this movie worked out really well for it. It has a terrific director, Dwayne Dunham. He's a very, very nice guy, very warm guy. And, and uh, he was probably the right guy really to do this picture. Absolutely. I agree with you on that. And I was thinking about if we can maybe shift it into the sequel, the overture that kind of roughly several minutes that opens the film and you see them in their, their new suburban home outside of San Francisco. And it's, it carries that theme that you have from the first film, but it also arranges it in interesting ways. And there's even almost a I'm not sure if this is the appropriate way of framing it, but almost like a, a Western flair to it and how some of the strings are arranged. Um, it's very powerful. It's, it's interesting you say that because actually, um, creatively or musically, the problem that I had was that it was in a different area. It was, in, it was now upscale. Now we're in town. Now we're in a city. We're in San Francisco. We're dealing with cars. We're not dealing with uh, cougars. We're dealing with cars and, and uh, people who are trying to pick up the animals and do danger to the animals, all that kind of stuff. Um, the way I had treated um, treated the first movie was I had little country elements in it. I had the guitar and all that kind of stuff because that's where they were. They were out in the country. It was kind of easy to do, uh, particularly with the, with the character of Chase. But when we got into the city, I wanted to use the same themes because I knew that the themes were already well set and people could identify with them, but how to present them was kind of a problem. And then, of course, we had that love theme. We had Delilah, the new character, um, which was a different thing entirely. So we had Chase, who was no longer really a country animal, but was just this upbeat, you know, animal full of, full of piss and vinegar. Um, it was, yeah, so it, it had a, a, sort of a different feel to it. And um, in that way, I think it was different from the first movie uh, because it, it was just, you were in town, you know, you just had to play it differently, you were in town. And all the things that happened, there's the fire, there's the, um, say they're the bad guys, they're the, uh, uh, almost like the, the animal gang, you know, you've got the old guys, the new guys, all that stuff. So it was, um, yeah, it was kind of a, it was in some ways a little harder to do because the first one had already set things up, but in a different way. Right. And you mentioned the love theme between Chance and Delilah In listening to it. I think of how it strikes that right note of being sweet yet not sappy. And you, it essentially is a theme that is played across several different um, spaces during the film and, and certainly in the ending where Delilah returns and they reunite. How did you figure out how you wanted to construct that in a way that was not um, not a, a type of love theme in which you would roll your eyes, but really is quite sweet between two canines. It's not something you see every day on film and to have a, yeah, yeah. a piece that re reflects that. It's pretty goofy, isn't it? Um, yeah, you, you get to believe that Delilah actually is a very cute little dog, you know? I mean, cute meaning like she, she'd be a cute girl or something like that, like a guy would be, really taken with her, but you realize she's a dog. 
Um, but you buy into it. You buy into the romance of these of these two animals. So I tried to treat Di Delilah. First of all, I, I tried to keep it very personal because it was just it was just chance and and um, and Delilah. It was their story. So I gave her a theme that I did with a um, with a sax lead, but not a um, not a rock and roll sax or even much of a jazzy sax. It's kind of, kind of a very classic, uh, pretty sound. And um, that was basically the way I treated her. I, I treated her as being uh, a classy, classy lady, that kind of thing. You know, that was the way I felt. And that the chance was, if he could get something going here, he would. He had, he had a good future. You know, at least in terms of his romantic life was concerned. Um, it was a big departure from everything else that was in the movie, and certainly nothing like that was in the first movie. Uh, so I treated it differently. I the, the the settings are a little bit more commercial, um, commercial meaning in this way, traditionally commercial, because I still wasn't getting too far away from that. Um, the chords were a little bit like the, the, the Homeward Bound theme is almost like a hymn. Those chords are very straight and very kind of church-like. Um, the Delilah theme, not so much. There were other, but <laughs> again, at the piano, if this, if these are hymns. chords that a little fuller out, a little bit more harmonically sophisticated. Um, that was the way I treated Delilah. You know, I mean, everybody would treat it probably differently, but that was the way I did it. Well, and I like how you pointed out, too, in terms of the choice of instruments. This sequel is primarily set in the city, and you add, like you said, adding the saxophone, which I don't believe surfaced at all in, in the first film. So being mindful of even what conveys the mood and tone of the environment. Yeah, and the, actually, the, the tune that you mentioned um, it sounded almost like uh, Western fiddle music. Um, it was the option to do that. And again, there, maybe there are other options that I just didn't come up with, but originally it was played on a guitar. It was a guitar tune. But the only thing I could think of to use was a string section um, and then try to tone down any sort of um, country feeling as much as I possibly could. But yeah, I did have kind of a Western vibe because that was the way the tune was. When I first created the tune, I had no idea it was going to end up in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for giving context on that and uh, kind of shifting over to some of your theme park work. And you mentioned uh, one of your very notable early pieces for the Walt Disney Company being Epcot's The Making of Me, which for in case listeners aren't familiar, it's centered on um, the subject of conception um, at the Wonders of Life Pavilion. And I, I saw the, the film a number of times in my childhood. And what I always appreciated about it was that the overall tone of the film is very authentic, very heartfelt, but there's also some cleverness in it. And in, in your score, you strike this balance between whimsy, particularly in the animated sequence where, you, where viewers see the sperm racing to reach the egg, and then on the flip side, there's quite a, a good deal of tenderness when you see the baby being born. How did you, how did you account for all these different flavors? I know there's some jazz in it too, in basically a 12, 15 minute film. Well, first of all, I had Martin Short. Um, Martin Short is not uh, the kind of guy you would give, I mean, not that he couldn't do it, and maybe he has done it, I just don't know about it. He's not the first guy you think of when you're doing Hamlet, you know? 
I mean, he's <laughs> very buoyant and he's uh, very quick and a very nice guy. And, and uh, he has that kind of persona when he does movies like this. So I think the choice of him was a really good choice to be able to be the host of this whole program because he can be very um, he can be very warm. At the same time, he can be kind of off the wall. And they got a lot of this bit of his personality in the film. So it helps me because now I know that I can play a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, you're right, they, when they get to the birth part, I think they handled the subject matter very well. I mean, after all, it's a Disney film, it's a theme park, millions of people are gonna come in and see this thing. And, and on one hand, you run the risk of, of um, saying too much to offend people. On the other hand, you run the risk of saying absolutely nothing so that the film makes no sense. So, it, you know, that was the kind of film it was. The um, when they got to the animated sequence, the thing that was funny about that to me was that was the first animated bit that I ever scored. Um, I had been wanting to do animation um, to try my hand at it, but they had a one minute sequence in there and that was it. That was my my beginning to, um, to animation. And for the, because it was animation and it was, they used animation so they could do things that they couldn't so easily do or so broadly do with live action. Uh, the animation, you know, it got a little bit bigger. So I've got a, a kind of a raunchy, not not raunchy, but a, I've got a tenor sax that are playing It Had to Be You. And, you know, it was all done kind of that way. It was all done kind of big. And then immediately after you get to the, to the live action, it comes down to a real baby, a real birth, the real feelings between a mother and the child and, and the parents. And, and I think in this particular case, the storyline was that that was supposed to be Marty Short. That was him. That was the story of his birth. Um, so it all becomes very connected and you get, again, very warm and, and uh, family-like and familial and concerned about the baby and the life and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, there was a lot of stuff packed into 15 minutes. I was going to say not every composer probably has the opportunity to incorporate so much flavor into a short amount of time. So it seems like both a challenge and an opportunity. Yeah, actually, I'll, I'll tell you, I've, I've often said, and if you've heard any of my other interviews, I've probably said this in every one of them. Um, I've always enjoyed animation and the, um, uh, the, the theme parks because they're always creative. You, you're never quite sure what the heck you're going to do with them, particularly on the, the theme parks. You never know. You never know what you're going to get into when you take on one of those jobs. And with animation just being what it is, that you can do just about anything in animation, um, you never quite know when enough is too much or when enough isn't enough, you know. And, what you're going to be called upon to do in this visual medium that is frankly um, limitless. So to me, uh, they're, they're really great mediums to, to work in, as well as the fact that everything is very well worked out and timing is um, very important. You have to really be right on your mark all the time. There's just no room for error on those things. Um, you work with people who are always prepared, who have worked on this thing for months or years before you ever got to it. And uh, they can answer a lot of questions that sometimes you find go unanswered when you're working on a live action feature, or particularly on a TV show where the, everything is just done very quickly. So I mean, they're, for me, they were just really great jobs to have. I've, I've always enjoyed animation and theme parks. And once I got a chance to really be part of the uh, Disney theme park, um, I did a lot of stuff that was, I, I, Actually, I can't think of one that I didn't like that I didn't have fun on or one that didn't confuse me a lot at the beginning as to how I was going to get the story told in this particular way. They're always they're always really interesting jobs. 
Well, and for, for those of us who have experienced the tractions and listened to the scores, we, we know that your work really encompasses a lot of different spaces and subject matter. And from making, uh, making of me in Epcot, you also composed another favorite um, now extinct attraction, which was Ellen's Energy Adventure um, at the Universe of Energy. And it had very sweeping and bombastic feelings, very energetic and optimistic, clever at times. Some of your work seems to have involved some major comedians of the time, whether it be Martin Short or Ellen DeGeneres in this case. What, what was your approach to essentially at the time they were updating this classic attraction, but making it more fun and entertaining and relevant. I, 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 Martin Short is another one that I think is still playing, Oh Canada, because um, he's Canadian, you know. Um, and I think there was something else I did with him. I know I did two movies that he was in. So I've, I've you know, I've had my, um, I've had a lot of experience. I, actually, I've never met him, but I, I've had uh, three or four projects that I worked with that Marty Short was in. Um, I think just as, as I was saying earlier about the making of me, Martin Short was a, really a good character to be the host for that particular show because he has so much range. And the show um, was put together in a way that he could be the, the right front guy for it. Uh, with Ellen DeGeneres on the, um, the energy pavilion, uh, I think she also suited it very well. I mean, the, the, particularly the character that she played in that, I think that was really good for her, and I can't imagine somebody else doing it quite the way that she did it. Um, that show, as you said, is extinct, but uh, it went for 20 years. Yeah. And the, when they first made it, um, they made it to hold 600 people at a time. They had six people movers, each these, um, I don't know what you call them. These uh, kind of like moving um, moving vehicles, almost almost like buses. That oh yeah, across the floor. Each one held a hundred people, and so the room was made, and the show was made, and the music was made to accommodate six hundred people to wait outside as the show in front, the show in the it was just ending was ending, and then have the doors open, have the original six hundred people leave the the room and have the new 600 people come in, get their seats, uh, be safely seated and situated, have the lights come down and dim, and then enjoy the show. All this stuff gets worked out by the Imagineering people. I mean, you never think about it. I mean, everything is timed. Everything is worked out mostly for everybody's safety and for everybody's comfort. Um, Spaceship Earth was like that, too. I, I found out a couple of things about the way the show was constructed because it was it had some things in it that I thought were accidents, and it turned out they weren't accidents. They were really intended for safety, period. That's it. So then you get into this room, and it has this enormous screen, and you don't know what it is you're going to watch. Um, something about energy. And they have a really good pre-show, which in introduces our main character, and still you don't know what you're going to watch. And you get in, and you watch this terrific movie on the birth of the universe and... and on energy and how it's used. It's, it's informative and it's really entertaining, you know? So I had a huge orchestra, I had a big orchestra. I remember we recorded it in London. Um, it was just a lot of fun. I mean, it was just really a lot of fun. Um, but it was big, you know, you, you get to play the birth of the or the birth of the um, universe. So they've got all this stuff having to do with energy 
and you get to play along. You know, you get to just have a good time like with everybody else. Not a bad deal. Not a bad deal at all. No, oh, and it was uh, talking about just the uniqueness of the attraction. It was rather substantial from a, a time standpoint in that one would spend about 40 minutes in this from the pre-show to the to the theater uh, elements within the ride and then ultimately going through the prehistoric era with the dinosaurs. You, you really have a lot of different flavors illustrated in that score as well, which is... Um, as a listener, I think, really enjoyable. Well, I, I think their pre-show was a little different um, from most pre-shows in that the pre-show really was a pre-show. It wasn't just getting you, giving you things to look at or think about before the show came up. It actually introduced you to the show because the whole setup happens in the pre-show. So it was, um, it actually didn't last the whole 20 or 30 minutes as you're waiting out there to get in. It, it was shorter than that, but I think it was a big part of the wait. So it may have seemed like it was a little longer and a little bit more important than it actually was, but it was important that it was a prelude to the show. Some of the other pre-shows, uh, we have them in shows like um, Soaring, where there's a pre-show, sort of. Uh, there's an introduction to, uh, there, there's a story that happens before you get into to the actual see the ride. The story is different depending on which park you go to. It's different in, uh, Shanghai, different in Tokyo Sea, is different in Epcot. Um, it, it not only gives people something to do as they're waiting, but it also gives them some information, it gives them some uh, sense of what it is they're about ready to see. Um, you know, a lot of the shows do that. This one, however, was really story connected and, uh, and worthwhile. As I say, it lasted a long time. What I was trying to say earlier about the 600 people and the, and the people mm -hmm. movers is, the last time I saw it, which was probably around 18 or 19 years into it, they didn't have 600 people in the, the room. I mean, because it had been seen a lot of times, but they had about 200 people. Um, these shows, even when they've been playing for a long time, still get a significant audience. There was one in France that I saw called Cinemagique. It's a 20 or 25 minute movie, really a good movie, really a good movie, basically on the history of film very entertaining and very cleverly done. Uh, they built a theater for it. So when my wife and I were over there, we stood in line and let's say it's about 20, 25 minutes. I guess the movie showed maybe every 35 or every 40 minutes during the day. So that's a lot of showings during the day. When we went there, it had been a couple of years already in the theater. The audience was about, I, I would say the theater was about two thirds, three quarters full, a lot of people. So these things get watched over and over and over and over and over again. Um, because they they continue to be entertaining. It's not like you're going to go to the uh, the, to the local cinema and, and see something like this. This stuff this stuff is built to last, and I'm talking about just the entertainment. It's built to last. I agree with you, and they're also really ingrained in our memories too. I I I play the piano as a hobby, and one one piece of music that uh, that you have composed that had never been released. Um, for, I guess, uh, for mass audiences is your theme for Ellen's Energy Adventure, which is just an epic five-minute energetic uh, anthem to the pavilion. And I, I feel like it really encapsulates the overall sentiment that you take away with once you, once you would leave the attraction. Actually, you know, I use that as a, uh, as a concert piece. A, um, Pops orchestras uh, can rent that piece through the Disney Music Department. 
um, I call it an Epcot overture, and it does. It lasts about five minutes. It's a big. It's got big orchestra. It's a big overture. It's got the main themes in it, and it plays really well, um, just by itself. But it, as you said, it does introduce the uh, introduces the show. There are two or three big pieces like that in the show. Um, yeah, it was it was a cool thing to work on. I mean, not like not like all the shows. I mean, all the shows don't need that much. Um, need that much music or that much weight but yeah this one this one worked really well and another attraction um perhaps the last that we can focus on for our conversation um also kind of threads this theme that i've now noticed in some of the projects that you've worked on which is the the notion of a birth for the making of me it's human birth for uh universe of energy was the birth of the universe and in the case of golden dreams at disney's california adventure it was really the, the birth of a state, but really going back thousands of years to the origins of this land by the indig indigenous people of California. And it was an opening day attraction at the park, so the birth of a park as well. Golden Dreams maybe didn't last as long as some of your other films and projects um, at the parks, but was a really treasured attraction and one that I always enjoyed going to. This is also an attraction where you have a lot of different influences based on the cultures illustrated on screen. And I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about the central theme of that film that is carried across all these different periods of history. Well, um, that, that uh, show was made for California Adventures. Um, so to have a show celebrating California wasn't um, I mean, it made a lot of sense, you know. Uh, and the Golden Dreams, obviously, is a play on the gold rush. But California has always been sort of the place for golden dreams. You know, it's Hollywood. And, and some people think that uh, California is la-la land. And even that phrase comes from Los Angeles, right? Being la-la, la-la land. Um, so... I happen to have been born in La La Land. I mean, I was actually born downtown Los Angeles. Uh, I'm from California. And um, though I didn't live here all my life, um, I spent a significant part of my life in Los Angeles. And, and uh, particularly since the time I came back to go to school, I've lived here for a good 50 years and more consistently. Um, this is a place that I, um, that, that I, have, that I resonate to. In fact, the entire American West is. I mean, when I got a chance to do Silverado, which is not a Disney thing, but when I got a chance to do Silverado, that was great because I'm actually from the West. The other guys who had done Westerns, like Elmer Bernstein, who did uh, Magnificent Seven, he's a terrific Western. He's from New York. You know, I'm from LA. I'm, I'm actually from the West. So I, I brought that to Golden Dreams. Um, I was really interested in the history of it. Yeah, they did start with the indigenous people. Um, that's a really important part of, of our history. Uh, they, they went, of course, into the Spanish uh, conquest and then to um, uh, how certain, they went to the gold rush. They went to the building of the railroads. They, they um, brought in different cultures. We have a huge, uh, we've had for 150 years, I guess, a huge Chinese population, a huge Japanese population. Um, we take all comers, you know, and California has um, been this 
well, this thing that I learned as a kid about the United States, the melting pot. California is really a melting pot of people coming not only of um, different races than Caucasian and different societies, but actually from various uh, Caucasian, I mean, you know, European races. I mean, when you think about how the movies were made and, and how some of the big businesses took place here in, in California and what it still represents and what it puts out, the kind of economy that, that California has and what it's built on and that the kinds of services it produces. It's quite an incredible state. So to work on this movie, I was happy, frankly, that they picked a Californian to do the score because um, I've been to a lot of the places that we mentioned in the in the um, film. And I've been to the Gold Rush area. And I've, I've been through some of the camps and the mountains and the prairies. And I've been to uh, Death Valley. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of this stuff and I know what it is. So it was, again, just another nice piece of serendipity for me to be able to work on something in a company with the people that I like, because I've worked with the same people over and over and over again on these theme park things. It's a great group of people. I mean, seriously, it's a terrific group of people. It's like, a, it really is like a family. Uh, very creative and very interested and very good with each other. And, and um, it's, it's almost like a seamless bit of work because you know what your job is when you go in there and you know who you're going to be working with. And, and if you don't, you'll quickly find out and you will be working together. You know, it's not something you just go and do it by yourself and come back and hope for the best. You're, you're working with people through this whole thing. So yeah, Golden Dreams was a, was a good gig for me. And um, sorry, it didn't last a little bit longer, but that's the way things go. Some of them have lasted a long time. You know, like I said, Ellen went for a long time. I found out recently that um, uh, Spaceship Earth, which was supposed to be ending right around now, is apparently going to continue for a while. So, hey, sometimes you get lucky, you know, they just keep going even when you think they're going to close. Yes, very fortuitous and, and what a great score as well. And in thinking about your body of work for the Walt Disney Company, Bruce, and in the Disney theme parks in particular, um, some some pieces I think of your Honey, I Shrunk the Audience theme, your Ellen's Energy Adventure theme have been released on CDs as part of park albums. And I understand from having listened to talk with some other um, podcasters on their own podcasts that Intral Records had been developing an album based on your work. And I'm wondering, featuring your work, I should say, can you maybe share if there's any update on that? Because I know it's been long in development. It's, yeah, it, we're just waiting. Um, we did this a few years ago. Basically what it is, it's a multi-CD CD set of all of my uh, music for the parks. For the Disney parks, and it, I think it's even up to date, so that the latest version of Soaring, which I did for Tokyo Sea, is is also on it. Um, uh, it's being produced by Entrada Records, which um, puts out the Disney uh, Disney music now. So we're hopeful that um, in the not too distant future that this set will become available for people who would like to hear it. A lot of the pieces actually have been recorded in um, suites or in one-offs, like just a piece here, a piece there, on the uh, CDs that, that Disney puts out and sells at the park. But this is supposed to be an entire entire set of everything from the making of me through to the last one, which was Soaring. Could you speak to um, just briefly how how that project came to be? Is it by virtue of Disney's interest in showcasing your work or what, what was kind of the origins of that? I think, as I remember, it, it came about actually through Entrada Records because I have a long history with Entrada. Um, they put out 
most of my soundtracks. I think we've done over 50 of them. Um, but once they got, um, once they become, the, they, they became the Disney uh, CD company, um, we started kicking around this idea of possibly putting together an album of all of my park music. And, you know, it's, it's actually, it's interesting when we were, when we were mixing it and doing the final mixes on it, it's interesting to hear how different they all are. They really are like little mini movies, you know. Um, most of them have been film pieces for me. Um, Spaceship Earth is one of the only rides that I think, maybe the only ride that I've done. Um, there have been a few uh, circle visions. Um, yeah, some of them have come and gone. Some of them are still there. Uh, it, it's funny, I mean, even for the ones that were taken down from, um, from France, the circle vision that I had there, uh, that still gets talked about a lot. There are a lot of people who still like, remember the music, and, I, and I've, I've even made that into a, um, to a rental, you know, to a, a pop thing that people can get. Um, it, 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 this, this music just doesn't get out of people's heads. You know, the experience doesn't get out of people's heads. They, they like the show and they like the music. And it's not just my music. I mean, there are a lot of guys, a lot of uh, motion picture guys are, are, have done this kind of music, but Michael Giacchino's done it, and you know, Leonard Roseman's done it. Um, I don't know, I mean, a bunch of guys. Uh, so uh, John Debney has done a lot of them. Um, so a lot of these people who are like your favorite film composers, um, you can find their stuff, James Horner, you know, you can find their music in the, in the theme parks. It's amazing. It, it really is. And I'll be among the first to purchase the, the album once it's released. But for now, it sounds like it's to be determined. Yeah, keep the thoughts for it because it's... Um, I think right now Disney has bigger problems <laughs> with COVID and all that kind of stuff in their and their parks than wondering whether they're going to re release Bruce's album. But uh, but it, as far as I know, it's still in the works. So we'll all look forward to it one of these days. Hoping we can conclude with some quick Disney music-related questions that are opinion-based. So they, there aren't any wrong answers here. And I, I think I might know what the answer to the first one is based on something you touched on earlier. Um, but did you have a Disney soundtrack that you listened to most while growing up? Well, when I was a kid, as I said, I, I listened, I mean, I, a small child, like three or four years old, um, I listened to the Bambi soundtrack. Um, I think probably up until, um, Hmm, Sleeping Beauty. I was probably aware of all the Disney soundtracks. I was aware of um, Songs from the South. I was aware of Cinderella, aware certainly of Peter Pan. Whatever the songs were, um, no, I was aware of them. And um, songs like Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo or, or I'm Late, I'm Late, or, um, or the, the, the great songs from Snow White, from Bambi, from uh, Pinocchio. I mean, all those things, I, I can't say that there was one that I liked more than the other. And I'd say even now, I mean, some of those, some of the songs from Snow White are just really good. You know, they're really good. Um, some of the songs from those early movies are really, really, really beautiful songs. And um, I still like, I still like listening to them. Absolutely. Would you say there's a Disney song that has recently become stuck in your head? Well, it depends on what day it is. Um, I mean, I'm susceptible to earworms as, as much as anybody, but um, no, I mean, I, I have to say, I don't have any particular favorite. Um, 
I can kind of go on a run and think of this. I mean, if I were to see a, a movie like, uh, occasionally one gets a cover, like I uh, think of Pinocchio, uh, Got No Strings. Um, it's a really cute little song, and, and in, the, the animation in Pinocchio is fabulous. But when he sings, when, when Pinocchio sings, it's got no strings. I mean, it's a really, really cute bit. But, oh, I don't know, 40, 40 45 years ago, Barbara Streisand did it on one of her albums. I'll tell you, it's a, it's a kick in the pants. I mean, she does a great job of it, too, and she's no Pinocchio, you know. I mean, she does, it's, there's a great arrangement. Um, it's a lively performance, and you listen to it and you go, you know, that's a great tune. In fact, I had to remind myself where it had come from because it's such a cool song, you know. You can take these songs, and I've, I've heard there's a, um, God, there's a Bill, uh, Bill Evans version of um, Alice in Wonderland, mm. which is really, I mean, that's a long way away from each other. Bill Evans, you know, the, this great jazz master, uh, doing the song from Alice in Wonderland? Are you kidding? But you know he does it, and you sit there and go, "Yeah, that's really a cool song." You know, I mean, these songs, these are great songs. These are the, the, particularly the early songs, which are my favorite. But um, yeah, some of them are really great songs. So no, one doesn't go through floating through my head any more than any of the others. But uh, one is almost as good as the other because there are a lot of truly marvelous songs in, in that in, in those movies. Would you say there's a Disney film that you feel has the most underrated music? Maybe songs or scores that people just don't talk about as much? Maybe Pinocchio. I think Pinocchio in some ways is an underrated movie. Um, uh, the, the, music, um, the music direction of those things was awfully good. I mean, you know, it, it's funny, even in the shorts, there was a guy that they had working for them, Frank Churchill, who wrote um, songs like um, uh, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, um, Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho, you know, the, the little ditties. They're, they're really just little ditties. He wrote, I think he wrote maybe all the songs. I, I may be wrong on this. I, he wrote either all the songs or most of the songs in Bambi. Um, mm -hmm. He also wrote the little themes. And, you know, they're... Musically, they're nothing. I mean, they're just nothing. But try to write one that's as good as that. In fact, I tried to in the in the Bambi version that I did, Bambi Two. We used some of the music from the original um, from the original show, and I would try to write in the style of Frank Churchill. Well, it may have been simple stuff, but it was awfully good simple stuff. And so you you see things in the uh, in the little shorts, the early Disney shorts, like the Three Little Pigs or or Mary Mel um, I'm sorry, um, Silly Symphonies. Uh, which later became Merry Melodies when it went to Warner Brothers. Uh, Silly Symphonies, those things, there's a lot of really tremendous, tremendous music um, cleverly made. Um, it doesn't always sound tremendous the way it's used, but it's very, very cleverly made. There's, there's one short, I can't remember what it was called, something about, it, it has to do with like two kingdoms. One is all jazz and the other one is all, um, I think, classical. And there's no dialogue in the film. There are these two different kings. One king speaks as a baritone saxophone. The other, the other one speaks as a contrabass, meaning that whenever you hear them talk, it's actually the instrument playing. There's no actual words in it. It's very, very clever. Uh, music played a huge part in the beginning of Disney, right from Steamboat Willie. The guy who was responsible for it was um, Carl Stalling 
who later uh, left Disney and went to work for Warner Brothers. He did all the Bugs Bunny cartoons and all those kind of things. Well, Carl Stalling was a friggin' genius and really great at doing this kind of stuff. And, and what he gave to Disney at the beginning was just a really great start. The guys who came later and were part of the Disney uh, music department were, they were a very classy group of composers. Um, you listen to some of their scores and a lot of it was utilitarian. I mean, like Buddy Baker was one of the guys that I knew. Buddy was a really fine writer, but a lot of his music you would have heard and would never have been aware that it was a staff guy at Disney putting this thing out. He did a lot of stuff at Disneyland, the early days of Disneyland. There were a lot of people like that. So you listen to it and you think, this is a, this is a, <laughs> this is a great business to be part of, you know. Um, in those days, particularly when they had the big music departments and all that stuff, they, um, they had some really great projects. Uh, Disney, I mean, Walt Disney himself had an appreciation for, for the songs, for the music. He got the Sherman Brothers. I mean, the, the Sherman Brothers were terrific. I mean, Dick, Dick and Bob, um, they did terrific songs. I mean, a lot of them were really very simple, just like it's a small world. You don't want to get, you want to think about that song too long because that one won't get out of your head for days. But they did that too. I mean, just very simple, very straightforward songs that you could pick up on the first hearing. And yet they're, you know, they're high quality songs given the, the movies that they're made for, you know. So, um, no, it's, it's quite a history they have over there. Right. And you've, and you've been a major part of that history. And I, I certainly want to make sure that listeners are familiar with where and how they can follow your work. Um, can you maybe point to your website and other platforms in which they may be able to learn more about your body of work? We're still, we're, we're, we're still working on the website, but there is a um, BruceBroughton.com that you can go to and, and find out some stuff. It's um, still in the process of being organized, so in a few months it might be more informative for those people who want it, but we plan to put some of the music on it, and, and um, it should be fun to listen to. More than that, uh, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube. Actually, um, a lot of the movie stuff probably even... I haven't looked at all the stuff that's on YouTube, but I think there are a lot of the Disney cartoons. I think some of the Roger Rabbit stuff is on YouTube. Um, so yeah, just put my name in on YouTube and see what comes up. And because of the time we live in with Disney Plus, many of your classic films and, and the shorts too um, have surfaced on this uh, streaming service so folks can access it that way as well. True. I mean, I see um, like The Three Musketeers, which is an animated movie, which is a really good movie. Um, you can find that on the streaming service. Um, a lot of the movies are available and they're still really good to watch. You know, particularly if you have little kids, they would like things like Homeward Bound and Rescuers Down Under. I still hear about people playing Rescuers Down Under for their two-year-old or their three-year-old who think it's just the greatest movie, you know. Um, and it is. I mean, they're not wrong on that. There's, uh, there's a lot of Disney to watch, and I, I've got a fair amount of it. Well, I have been such a, such a lucky person to have grown up with the films that, and theme park work that, um, that you are responsible for, and it's been such a gift to talk with you and learn from you, Bruce. So I really appreciate your time and, and sharing your experiences and, and compositions with everybody. Well, thank you, Brad. You, you had some pretty good questions in there, so <laughs> thank you for that. Thank you again, Bruce, for coming on Notably Disney. It was really a treat for me. And listeners, I hope it was a treat for you, as Bruce is such a big part of the Disney 
music history, as I said, in the theme parks, in films. His work is just magical by all intents and purposes. We use that term a lot in describing aspects of Disney, and maybe it's a slightly overused at times, but it's enchanting, and it makes you feel often spirited and excited and comforted. So his work has really served that purpose for me over really my entire life, and uh, I know it will continue to do so for many, many years to come. I would also like to encourage you listeners to listen to other podcasts where Bruce has been on and talking about his Disney work. I hope that my conversation with him today complements some content that you may hear in other spaces. So you might recall Dan Heaton from the Tomorrow Society podcast. He was on several episodes ago and talking about uh, Walt Disney World attraction cue music. Dan had Bruce on a few years ago and talked a lot about his Epcot work. Uh, he's also been on the Dreamfinders podcast. So what I hope today really serves as a compliment to uh, what those discussions entailed because there's no shortage of conversations as it pertains to Bruce's really extensive library of Disney work. So thank you, Bruce, for this opportunity. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.